Well, good morning, church. I missed my cue there, Tim. I'm sorry. It is uh, my, uh, my pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, everything that uh, Pastor Josh uh, said is true. We, we do indeed love uh, Hagerstown Church, and uh, it's good to see so many familiar faces and, uh, and some new ones as well. Um, I, I bring greetings from the elders at the church at Martinsburg, and I uh, just want to say to you guys that it's been a real encouragement for us uh, to see your commitment to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and to see your commitment to the good of the city of Hagerstown. And uh, I've been particularly encouraged to hear the reports of your unity uh, in the midst of what are very challenging and for many churches, uh, dividing times. So Jesus said that the world will know us by the, the love that we have for one another. And it, it's really encouraging to see that you all are living out this verse for Hagerstown and the world around you to see. So I just want to say, we love you all. We're encouraged by the work that you're doing and, and want to say, keep up the good work. My, my task this morning is, is to continue in your series in the Gospel of Mark. I thought Pastor Tim did a great job last week laying out the context for us as we saw in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus taught a series of parables and then we saw that culminate with Jesus demonstrating his divinity and his absolute authority over nature as he spoke. Uh, Peace be still, and a storm obeyed him. And this week, we're going to turn our attention to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And we're going to see Jesus facing another storm. O- only this time, it's not a storm on the outside, but it's a storm raging on the inside. I'm going to try to follow a similar pattern as Pastor Tim did last week and walk through our text and make a few observations and, and a couple of applications for us this morning. Our-, our big idea this morning, though, is that Jesus brings in the kingdom of God with all authority and power, and that trust in Jesus leads to radical personal transformation. Before we jump into our text this morning, though, I want us to consider something about stories, stories in in general. So many of the stories that we love and so many of the most popular stories, and and quite frankly, so many of the, the great stories follow a similar theme where we see good against evil, I think a few uh, movies uh, illustrate this, a couple of my favorites. One in particular is the movie Braveheart. It's one of my favorite all-time movies, right, where we see William Wallace. My wife is smiling in the back. I watched this thing on repeat a couple of years ago. Uh, Love this movie. Uh, But uh, we see William Wallace, right, this man of great courage and and great character, a a man of principle, uh, the good guys, right, fighting against the evil English in, in King Edward I. And, and if you watch that movie and you pay attention, you find yourself rooting for William to win. Or what about another one of my personal favorites, The Lion King? We see uh, Simba and, and we find ourselves rooting for Simba and Timon and Pumbaa to, to go back and avenge Mufasa's death and defeat Scar and the, the hyenas and bring back peace and prosperity to, to Pride Rock, right? Or maybe if you're like me and you've got small children, you find yourself uh, rooting for Owlette and the PJ Masks to defeat Luna Girl and, and Night Ninja. The point here, though, is that uh, we can take this kind of pattern that we see in movies, this kind of theme of good versus evil, in, and we can look at the world this way. We can apply this to, 
to God and the, and the world around us. God is good and Satan is evil and there's a war going on. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll start to think that we got to wait until the end to see who it is that's going to win. Right, we hope that God's going to win, but we're not so sure. We look around us and we see evil so pervasive in the world, and maybe we are tempted to think that evil is winning. But we're going to see in our passage today that God's relationship to evil doesn't follow so many of those great stories that we love. It's, it's actually quite different. And with that, let's turn our attention to Mark chapter 5. But before we do, let me pray and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, you are good and you do good, and we're grateful for a chance to gather to, together today as your people, for a chance to open your word and to look together, for a chance to lift our voices in song to you, our Lord, our God, our King. We are grateful, and we are also dependent. And so we're, we're so thankful that you've paid it all. And we are dependent upon you today, Lord, to open our eyes to see. We want to look at your word and not leave the same. And so help us, Lord, to look at your word and be changed, to see you, Jesus, more clearly. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, verse 1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." So here we see Jesus calm the storm. They're on their way to the other side of the, the sea. And when they get off the boat, they're confronted with this demon-possessed man. And in verses 1 through 5 there, we see the description of this man is, is quite terrifying. It says that he lived among the tombs. This man prefers the company of, of dead folks to the living the, the townspeople had tried to bind him, but to no avail. He simply breaks the shackles and the chains that they place on him. We see that this man has superhuman strength. And so they had allowed him to run around up in the mountains among the, the tombs. And we're told that night and day, this man could be spotted shrieking out and cutting himself with sharp stones. Every word here in Mark's introduction to the demoniac emphasizes his pathetic existence. The townspeople's reaction demonstrates that they're simply at a loss here. They, they don't know what to do with him. To them, this man is insane. But Mark tells us that the man's condition is not simply psychotic, but that he's actually possessed by demons. This account here in Mark chapter 5 shows us more graphically than any other in the Gospels that this function of demonic activity is to distort 
and to destroy the image of God. And so the demons have this demon-possessed man living more like an animal than a human. And, and it's for this reason that Jesus doesn't avoid this significant confrontation, but instead Jesus and his sovereign authority is going to demonstrate that authority and the quality of his salvation. Both of those things are going to find graphic illustration in this historical account that we look at this morning. But before we, we move on here, there's something that I want us to see in verse 6. There's something that we really can learn from this demon-possessed man. Verse 6 says that, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. He ran and fell down before him. There's something that we can learn here from this man. We see him running to Jesus. Now, I'm not sure how this demon-possessed man knew how Jesus was going to deliver him, or maybe even that he could, but something has led this man to run and to throw himself at the feet of Jesus. Now, I'm not sure, but in a room this size, I can only imagine that there are things that are going on in your life and in your mind and in your heart that you've run out of answers for. Your, your self-discipline can't get it done. You've tried leaning on your friends or your finances. You, you've tried everything that you know how to do, but you, you can't find escape. Is it addiction to drugs or a, a secret addiction to pornography? Is it marital issues? Is your marriage strained or falling apart? Are there deep-seated anger issues that seem to erupt out of you toward your, your children or toward your spouse that you just can't seem to get a handle on? We can learn from this demon-possessed man that this morning we just need to go in faith to Jesus and throw ourselves at his feet. Run to Jesus. This brings us to verse 7 and our first observation, if you will. The first one wasn't listed, and that one was for free. You are welcome. Our first official observation is Jesus' authority over the demons. Verse 7 says, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And here in this, these two verses, we see a really interesting exchange. I believe that the demons are speaking through the man here, as I think we'll see more clearly in a couple of verses. But remember, these demons are enemies of God. These are angels that fell from heaven with Satan in rebellion against God. And the first thing that I want us to kind of think about here as we see, as we consider Jesus' authority over the demons, is that first of all, demons are real. These are real beings. And I know that we in the West, we often dismiss these sorts of things as, as superstitious and maybe we're just not familiar with them. And so um, if we were to see someone in this kind of condition, probably we would just chalk it up to some sort of psychological, uh, psychological condition that this man is dealing with. And, and in our society, we have people like this. We don't really know what to do with them. So what we do is we medicate them. We maybe put them in a straitjacket. We put them in a, a padded room. But in, in this story, we are seeing that demons are, are very real beings 
with a purpose to oppose God and his mission in the world. And often one of the ways that demons work to deceive us is by getting us to think that they don't exist. You see, maybe we think that demon possession in this kind of way is the only way that we see demons working in the world. But that's not actually the case. Now, we as Christians know that we cannot be possessed by demons. We are uh, temples of God, right, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and so we are not at risk of this sort of possession. But demons, they do work to tempt us. And of course, if we give in, it's our responsibility and in and, and, and our fight with our own flesh, but demons actually work to tempt us. Or, or we can see in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says that the Spirit uh, expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And so one way that demons are working in our world today is by infiltrating the church and teaching false doctrine. And so we see in their work of creation um, idols, and while the idol itself obviously is not real or does not, does not have any real being, that demons are actually behind that, uh, that work also. So demons are real and they are working to try to oppose God's work in the world to the point where we see them stripping the, the um, image of God from this man. He's living as a beast. But we also see that here in verse 7 that the demons recognize Jesus for who he is. They even call him by, they even call him by his, his title. They say, Jesus, son of the most high God. These demons are not only real, they recognize Jesus when they see him and they recognize Jesus' divinity and his authority over them. And even though the demons are at war against God and are trying to oppose God's good plan in the world, when Jesus shows up, they don't try to fight. They, they say, what have you to do with me? What have you to do with me? The, the demons are recognizing here in Jesus one who threatens their very existence. One who threatens their very existence. And so rather than, so, so this would be like equivalent to um, two armies at war, one invades the other's territory, and when they, when they get to the place where, where it's time to fight, the side that's being invaded says, hold up, why, why are you here? What are you doing? They're at war. You would expect to see a fight here, but that's not what we, we see. Rather, instead, we see the demons beg Jesus for mercy. They, they even invoke God's name as a form of protection. Jesus has absolute power over them, and it's not a fair fight. Here, in this, in this, uh, this confrontation here, we see a, a valuable lesson you see, the demon or demons believe in Jesus. They know exactly who he is. And in a sense, they make a, a proper confession of Jesus, right? It follows a very similar pattern to, to that that we see of Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And, Je and Peter answers and says, you are the Christ, the, the son of the living God. 
it follows a very similar pattern. These, these demons obviously believe in Jesus, but, but this is a belief that doesn't lead to salvation. As we know, the demons are ultimately going to be destroyed when Jesus comes back. And so here they're, they're trying to manipulate Jesus in a sense. They, they want him to, to spare them. And so you can see here, like this isn't the same kind of fight that we're accustomed to seeing in so many of those movies that we love. The battle, in fact, is already won. But I don't want you to miss this because it's so important. It's possible for us to know a lot about Jesus but not actually know Jesus. Saving faith requires deep trust in him and it will result in a changed life. As one pastor put it, if your knowledge of God hasn't led to a changed life, you are no better than the demons. Or as Paul says it in James 2, 19, you believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so we can't miss this. Mere intellectual assent to the Christian faith does not save anyone. True commitment to Christ and submission to Christ is needed. So verse 9 says, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion of some 6,000 soldiers And this may account for the superhuman strength that we see in this man. They simply cannot bind him. And it it probably also accounts for the depth of the control that they have in this man's life. Verse 10 says, And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So our next observation is that Jesus has power to transform. Jesus has power to transform. So he's got authority over demons, but his power to transform. And we see it perfectly illustrated here. The demons beg Jesus' permission to enter into the pigs, probably so they don't have to leave the region where they're working. They ask Jesus for permission, and Jesus grants their request unclean spirits enter into unclean animals as we see a herd of pigs this size probably is not being raised by a jew in that day they were not allowed to raise pigs and so this is gentile land unclean spirits enter unclean animals and what we see is such a dramatic scene i mean could you imagine being there and witnessing this scene knowing who this man is and hearing him crying out, seeing him naked and running around among the tombs in the mountains, and then to see him run and to throw himself at Jesus' feet and cry out with a loud voice. And then the exchange that happens with Jesus and the demons, only for the demons to request Jesus, 
to go into the pigs. And Jesus grants the request, 2,000 pigs then run and throw themselves off of a cliff to their death. I mean, could you imagine being there and, and seeing this picture? As I was looking at this text and, and considering this, most commentators that I, I read seem to agree at this point that Jesus actually grants the request of the demons to, to demonstrate to the man and to those who are watching that the intention that these demons have ultimately for the man is, is to utterly destroy him. So he grants their request because it gives vivid illustration of the intention of these demons. They were seeking to utterly destroy this man as they utterly destroyed those pigs. And so we see their purpose was to destroy Jesus, or Satan rather, is called the destroyer, and so too it is the purpose of these demons to destroy Jesus, in granting the request, gives this man a powerful, graphic, visible lesson on the immensity of the evil from which he had been delivered. As Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life. Look with me at verse 15 in our passage. It says that the man, the demoniac, is now clothed and in his right mind. Uh, Imagine being a a herdsman here and seeing all of this commotion and then coming to find the man that they had known to be insane, who who was so violent that he could not be held by chains, who, who roamed around naked amongst the dead, is now sitting quietly clothed and in his right mind. This picture for us gives eloquent expression to the peace and the life-giving power that Jesus possesses. John Calvin said that though we are not tortured by the devil, perhaps, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. Friends, if you're here today and you are new to Christianity and you're still trying to figure out what all of this is about and and, and what the Bible teaches, uh, the Bible teaches that we've all sinned against God, our creator, and become slaves to sin. But God sent his son Jesus into the world and, and the Jesus that we saw last week with all power demonstrating his divinity and absolute authority over nature calms a storm in the Sea of Galilee. And then this week we're seeing in the life of this demon-possessed man, Jesus brings peace and power to transform. And he can bring this peace and power to transform in your life today if you'll just trust him. Next week you'll see that Jesus even has authority over the grave. And the ultimate way that Jesus demonstrates this is by dying on a cross. The Bible says that he did this to pay for the sins of all of those who would turn from their own sin and trust in themselves and place their faith in him. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God, made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because you see, although Jesus died on a cross, he didn't stay in the grave. On the third day, he rose up in victory, defeating sin, death, and Satan. 
And so Jesus has power to transform. The last thing that I want us to see here in our text this morning is the response of the people. We see a couple of different responses here to this, this really profound miracle that Jesus performs. First, we see the response of the herdsmen at the end of verse 15. We are told that they are afraid. So rather than rejoice at the marvelous nature of this miracle that they just watched Jesus perform, they're, they're afraid. And so they think he's got power to perform a miracle like this who is this right similar to the response that we saw of the disciples last week in the boat Jesus calms the storm they're more afraid after Jesus calms the storm than they were before when they thought their life was on the line in the boat they were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm that was raging outside and in a similar way we see these herdsmen are more afraid now of the one who possesses this kind of power to do a miracle like this than they were of the demoniac running around in the tombs. And then look with me at verse 16 and 17. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So they go to the townspeople and they tell of what's happened and they're so afraid that they actually asked Jesus to leave the region. And so they recognize here that Jesus' power cannot be understood, and it certainly cannot be controlled. And how, how many of us maybe find ourselves in this camp here this morning? We don't really want a relationship with the real Jesus. The Jesus of Scripture, you see, cannot be tamed or put in a box. And when the real Jesus shows up, he wrecks stuff. Many of us, we, we want a Jesus that's made in our own image, a, a comfy little Jesus. We want a Jesus that finds us and leaves our lives just the way they are. But friends, the, the truth is that this, this is no Jesus at all. Jesus is going to shake things up. He's going to change our priorities. He's, he's going to stand away at our rough edges. He's going to dig down into the darkest parts of our hearts and change us in fundamental ways. You see, Jesus, by casting out the demons and granting the request to go into the pigs, had a huge economic impact on these people whose who's herd of pigs it was. And that's why you see this dominating their consideration in verse 16. If Jesus had the power to destroy this herd of pigs, they say, what if his power strikes again and with even more serious consequences? Fear and ignorance and selfishness dominate their considerations rather than compassion for the demoniac and worship for the Lord. So they ask Jesus to leave. And Jesus doesn't stay where he isn't wanted. And in contrast to the townspeople, we see the reaction of the former demoniac in verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 says, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So Jesus is 
getting back into the boat. He's preparing to leave the same way that he came. And, and this demoniac asked, a former demoniac, asked an understandable question. Right? He wants to be with Jesus, the one who had just showed him so much mercy. And, and even the phrasing that Mark uses here um, demonstrates for us that what the man is asking is actually to travel with Jesus for the sake of discipleship. He wants to travel with Jesus and, and be taught to follow him, to, to taught to do the work of the Lord. And, and in contrast with the townspeople, to the demoniac, Jesus isn't some divine man to be feared. Rather, he's one who gives healing that is redemptive and, and radically transformative and who calls forth devotion from his followers. And it's interesting this is the only request in the passage that Jesus denies. Verse 19 says, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So Jesus doesn't permit the man to come, but instead he instructs him to return home to the family and friends from whom he had been estranged for so long and to declare all that the Lord has done for him, how the Lord has had mercy on him. And so this man gladly obeys and becomes the first Gentile missionary. Verse 20 says, And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So brother, sister, Christian here this morning, when is the last time that you shared what the Lord has done for you with someone? When, when's the last time that you shared what a wonderful family you found here at Hagerstown Church? Realize, friends, that like this man, Jesus has saved us and sent us out to carry the good news of God coming to save sinners, to have mercy on us. He's placed you in the neighborhood that he's placed you in so that you can spread his fame there. He's placed you in your job so that you can speak of the Lord who, who, um, who, who's, who, who's bringing satisfaction to your soul. And, and realizing that all of those people that the Lord has placed you around, he's placed you around for a reason. And all of these people are looking to find satisfaction in any and everywhere possible. We're all doing it, right? We're all trying to find the thing that'll satisfy our souls. The only difference is they are all looking in places that won't work. They're searching for answers. They're asking the big questions. They're open to the conversations now more than ever. And so friends, how will you respond to Jesus today? Where are you at? Will you reject him out of fear for what it might mean for your life? Are there ways in which you're not trusting the Lord for fear of what it might mean for your life? Will you run to Jesus this morning and, and cast yourself at his feet? Because you see this declares for us that the victory of Jesus over the evil forces is a reality in which the liberating power of the kingdom of God is manifested in an extension of the saving mercy of God. 
God saves sinners. What good news this is. Let's pray. Father, you, you are so good. And we, your people here this morning, are grateful for your word, and we're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for his life. We're grateful for his death and his resurrection. And we recognize, Lord, that this is our only hope. And so help us to respond to you in faith today, to trust you, to consider what following you might mean. Help us, Lord, with with eyes wide open to see anew the places that you've sent us to, the places that you might be sending us to. Help us to look with, with fresh eyes around our workplaces, at those that you've placed around us or in, in this season, Lord, for opportunities and creative ways to share and to care for our coworkers as we, many of us, are working from home. Help us to think about the, the neighborhoods that you've placed us in and to look around at our neighbors and, and try to go out of our way, Lord, to, to meet them and to care for them and to learn about them and to ultimately share the good news of what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to to uh, continually be renewed by your word, to uh, grow ever uh, more in a desire for your word and a desire for holiness, a desire to be shaped into the image of Jesus. And uh, again, we're so grateful for what you're doing here. I pray that you continue to build Hagerstown Church. Bless the pastors here and bless your people here, Lord, and uh, bless their work. May it be be uh, very fruitful and we see a, a mighty work of yours started here for the glory of your name in Hagerstown and for the good of the people here, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.